Uninvisible is a support podcast that deals squarely with medical issues that present unique advocacy issues for individuals. We do not provide medical advice. Please consult with your physician for any medical issue that you are facing. Information and comments that you send to us are governed by our terms of service and privacy policy, which are available on our website located at uninvisiblepod.com. The opinions expressed by guests are their own and are not necessarily the opinion of Uninvisible or the show sponsors. Any advertising that you may hear is accepted without regard to our editorial content. Welcome to Uninvisible. I'm your host, Lauren Friedman, and I'm here with my guests to bring you info, insights, and inspiration for coping with, diagnosing, and treating invisible illness. We're here oversharing, so you don't have to struggle with invisibility anymore. Okay, guys, I've cooked up something amazing with my friend Natalie Y. Beavers, founder of Angels of Epilepsy, and it's all yours for free now. Go to my website at uninvisiblepod.com and download your free ebook called Hacking Healthcare, a resource guide Natalie and I have compiled using not only our experiences in the healthcare system, but also with the assistance of other patient leaders who have added their two cents. From a message of empowerment to notes on navigating health insurance and your doctor's visit, this is an invaluable guide intended to make healthcare more approachable and to give you the tools you need to succeed. This resource has been incredibly eye-opening and important to us, and we hope that with it, you will see real results and improve your experience in the system. Once more, that's a free download of Hacking Healthcare at uninvisiblepod.com. Go check it out, guys. Thank you. All right, guys, thank you so much for joining us today. I am here with a sister duo who are Spoonies making it work together. I've got Estella and Juana Mata. Estella lives with fibromyalgia and Juana lives with lupus. They are the founders of Looms for Lupus, which is an organization in Los Angeles that brings people from the lupus and fibromyalgia communities together. So ladies, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you for inviting us. Absolutely. Yeah. This conversation has been a long time coming because I first heard about you two pretty early on in my advocacy work and connected with Melissa Talwar at the end of last year, who's friendly with you um, and works with you both. And it was really great to hear more about you from her. And so ever since then, I've been like, I need to have them on the show. So I'm so glad it's finally happening. Yes, we're so excited to be here. We, you know, we follow you. We like to see everything that you, you know, you bring together so many different uh, people and so many different perspectives. So, you know, we just love the variety uh, that you bring on to all the students around. (laughs) Yeah, well, I'm sure you two will both have a very interesting and individual perspective on all this stuff today, too. So let's start from the beginning. Can you talk to us about how and when you first got your diagnoses and how the two of you have maintained control over your health since then. And well, I'll start. I'm Juana. Great. And um, initially I started having symptoms in 2008, um, having many symptoms, uh, hair falling, headaches, the fatigue, uh, uh, pain on my joints, hands. Um, And, and, um, in 2009, early 2009, I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. Hmm. Uh, that was pretty devastating for me. Yeah. And uh, a few months after, uh, after going through many changes, the butterfly rash on my face, again, yeah. the falling of my hair and uh, mouth sores, 
um, in May, I was diagnosed with lupus after fighting and arguing with, with a doctor uh, because I wasn't feeling well. So I went to the hospital and uh, I knew something was wrong. Uh, the mouth sores and no, uh, no sores were really bad. Mm. So I asked him to, to see if he could order blood work to see what was wrong with me because I knew something was not right. Yeah. Um, after arguing for a few uh, minutes, uh, he finally sent me to get blood work. And of course, you know, my first question was, am I going to get my results today? And he said, yes. However, when I went down to the laboratory, I was told that I wasn't going to get my results until the following day. Mm -hmm. I was not very happy about that. Mm -hmm. So I went back to the office, to the doctor's office, which is in the same building. And I asked him, you know, uh, I know something's wrong with me. I'm not going to leave until you let me know what is wrong. Um, of course, you know, I knew I wasn't going to get the results. So he asked me if I was okay for me to go back and get a, a second um, set of lab work um, after he diagnosed me with anxiety because he, he, <laughs> he didn't really like the fact that I was arguing and, and kept insisting that something was wrong with me and I wasn't going to leave without knowing what was wrong with me. Oh, anxiety. That's a great catch-all for everyone. Yeah. I mean, of course I'm anxious. I'm waiting for a diagnosis and I'm in pain. Right. Oh. right. And one of the things he did mention to me when I was there, he said, you look fine. You don't look sick. <laughs> and yes, you know. It's like the classic story. I love this. <laughs> um, you look fine. You don't look sick. And yes, I, I do understand. I did have my makeup on. I My hair was done. And um you know, I, I was wearing heels, mm. but anyway, so I go get my lab, the lab work for the second time, come back 30 minutes after I was asked to go into the doctor's office. Mm. And, um, so I'm, I'm there and he, he said, um, that he needed to speak with me. He talks to me and he tells me, well, something is not right. I said, so what's wrong with me? And he said, well, your platelets. Um, well, I knew a little bit about platelets because uh, uh, in about April, I had gone to a family doctor in Mexico where he had checked my blood work mm-hmm. and my platelets were at 99, which he said, follow up with your provider because that's not normal. Mm-hmm. So 99, uh, and I knew something was wrong with me back in April. So I'm here in May with this provider and he's telling me something's wrong with you. Your playlists are low. I said, okay, that's fine. How low are they? He tells me, well, they're at 6,000. I said, oh, 6, so now 000. these numbers are not matching at all. Just six. Six. Yeah. Six. And I yeah. was like, okay, am wow. I going to die? Because the only thing that I can remember is 99 is low. Right. And if six we're, is that now much we're at six, wow. am I going to die? But it's actually, when she says 99, it's 90, it just classifies it as 99, but it's 99,000. Gotcha, gotcha. But either way, this is like a significant drop. Right. Yeah. Well, uh, after, you know, arguing and fighting with him and he tells me you're at 6,000 or six. uh, And I said, well, am I going to die? What's going to happen? He said, well, let me uh, check with with a specialist hematologist. And um, long story short, by then I wasn't allowed to get up. I wasn't allowed to move out of my chair until they put me on a wheelchair and send me to ER. And this is wow. twice she's gone to the lab with her heels walking around because she was just anxious. And now all of a sudden 
oh no, you can't walk anymore. We're bringing the wheelchair. We're going to wheel you down. Now we're scared. Yeah. Right. But it's fascinating too, because this doctor would have written you off with anxiety and possibly sent you home had you not pushed for these labs. Oh, yes. She was sent home. I was sent yeah. home. I was sent home. Um, the only reason I, I had the second lab work done is because I insisted. Hmm. So he did diagnose me with anxiety and I was also diagnosed with um, thrombocytopenia. Um, so I was sent to the ER, called my sister, and uh, while we were on the phone back and forth, you know, she arrived, and before midnight, they had already drawn two more blood samples where my playlists have, were dropping just drastically. At 12 o'clock, my playlists were at 2, 2,000. Wow. So had I gone home, I would not be here talking to you. Wow. Because my playlists were dropping so fast that by midnight, I don't think I would have been alive had I not been starting, had I, had they not started the treatments. Well, you wouldn't have been alive had you not stood up for yourself because this doctor was happy to send you home as an anxious woman. Yes. Yes. Mm. Because she looked great. Yeah. Like, like, you know, newsflash for anyone who's tuning into this show and hasn't figured it out already. You can look great and feel like death. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> and yes. women are especially good at looking great and feeling like death because we've been taught to do that since the moment we were born. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, um, so uh, while I was waiting for one of the ear doctors, my sister was with me and she was actually the one, uh, Stella, my sister, Stella. So she was actually the one that as the doctor, he comes in, there's a change in, in doctors uh, so the doctor walks in and he tells me that, you know, he's going to let me know what's wrong with me. Uh, they were setting me up to to do get blood transfusion or platelet transfusion. He comes in and he tells me that they're not going to be able to do that because there is something wrong with me. And even if I get transfusions, that's not going to help me. Hmm. So my sister looked at him and said, does she have lupus? So you so- knew. Yeah. Yeah. So I have been, uh, this is Estella. So I have been working in healthcare for a long time. I'm not a nurse provider or anything like that, Mm -hmm. but I worked with a lot of specialists. So we had hematologists, rheumatologists, dermatologists, and all the IST you can think of. And, um, and what I started doing is looking at her symptoms, like the butterfly rash, you know, everything. Yes. And, um, and I figured that's what it was, but I was scared because anytime you Google, which you should never Google, mm. the first thing you find is death and no cure, right? Yeah. And no treatments. Back then there were no treatments. So as soon as I got there and I asked him, he immediately turned to me and asked me, are you a doctor? Are you a nurse? Like, how do you know about this? Mm. And I said, well, let's not focus on me. Yeah. I was like, why are we talking about that right now? Let's talk about how to save my sister. But I will tell you because of him, she was diagnosed and he was, pre- he was pretty new and you know, the shift had changed. So he was the my one goodness. that said no transfusion. Yes. And diagnosed her with lupus. So mm. She's alive here today, like you said, because she advocated for herself. You know, she got a diagnosis that she, um, you know, fought for basically. And, you know, she's alive here because she refused to go home. Yeah. And it sounds like also you mentioned that this was like a newer doctor. It sounds like maybe someone a little bit fresher in the medical field. Yes. And he's the one that actually diagnosed her. So, you know, and I think what, what happens is, you know, there's not a lot of focus on these autoimmune conditions, I guess, when they're in school. So when you get someone, I think, fresh, it's like new perspectives. They're looking at, mm. okay, what could this be? And, you know, he was amazing. Mm. 
little more open to these more sort of at the time esoteric diagnosis diagnoses, which are of course so much more common than we, we realize or, you know, give credit to, but um, really interesting that it also took someone who was younger to be open to your opinions as well and to be, uh, you know, really looking out for you. So um, what happened at that point then? Um, you didn't get the transfusion, but you got the diagnosis. So how did they, did they immediately like get you on Plaquenil and, you know? No, uh, they actually put me on um, different treatments. I, well, IVIG, that was right. one of the treatments, uh, prednisone, very high doses of prednisone, but I was on ICU for seven days. Wow. Uh, within those seven days, they couldn't control my platelets. They would do the IVIG and they had to constantly do different treatments while I was in the hospital. I was released seven days after. And after that, um, well, I did have uh, a hematologist that I, that I was going to um, on a weekly basis. I was getting blood work done on a weekly basis because for a whole year, um, the platelets, the, the, uh, they couldn't control my platelets. So yeah. I was on ICU for a few times, at least four times I was in ICU because no treatment was helping me. Mm. Um, it was a, a daily struggle. And a lot of the times I had this lupus uh, symptoms, yet there was no way for me to check about my playlist unless I got a, a blood, uh, they would check my blood. Right. And so I was going to get my blood work done every three days or every, every seven days. And I was, uh, they were trying different treatments. I was on uh, chemotherapy mm. or uh, methotrexate for two years. Mm. And finally they were able to control my, the, the platelet count. to so 50, I, right? Well, it would go anywhere from 20 to 30 to 50 to 90. So what the doctor had said, my hematologist had said that if my playlist weren't controlled at one number and it wasn't fluctuating so much, then that 50 was okay for me. Right. However, if they kept fluctuating where they would go to 30, 20, 19, 80, then they would have to do a procedure, which was a splenectomy. Wow. So So did you end up having that? No, I didn't. Lucky. A few months before um, the scheduled date for the splenectomy, um, my playlists were stable. Wow. So that if they're stable right now, we're not going to uh, move forward with the splenectomy. However, they still continue to check the playlist count on a weekly basis. And um, it did remain at one uh, number, um, no higher than 100, but stable. Right. I mean, it's really interesting to me because it's like, also you go from ICU to then spending the next two years being in the doctor's office on a weekly basis or several daily basis, if you will, getting tested endlessly. That's got to be running your body down while you're in the midst of trying to heal as well, right? Yes, it was very, I mean, I had very, very bad days, but I also had good days where I just felt like, okay, I'm okay, though I was still going through a lot of pain and uh, fatigue, but I felt that, you know, I was, I was able to do it not only because, um, you know, I was fighting uh, against, you know, uh, just feeling down or fighting with the pain, but also having the family support, um, which I think it's one of the things that really helped me. My sister support, my mom support, my family support play it a big role in how I was doing and how I was feeling and how I was uh, living my daily, my daily life. 
Absolutely. And we're going to get into that more as well. But it sounds like from that point on, you were able to find the emotional strength to keep on with the support of your family and friends. And you are now still in a stable place and advocating for others as well. Um, So I'd love for you, Estella, to tell us a little bit about your diagnosis story as well. Um, Catch up with your sister here (laughs) to find out how you both ended up with diagnoses and advocating for each other. Um, Well, for me, uh, this is Estella. So I have been living with pain for a long time. Uh, You know, just we have a very high tolerance for pain in our family. So, you know, pain every day is okay. But then there are those days where it just gets worse and worse. So I've been living with pain since probably when I was 15 years old. And um, living with pain for me was like, okay, we can control this, we can figure this out, we can stretch, we'll exercise. Then about, I want to say, Three years ago, symptoms started getting worse where my fatigue was really, really bad. My hair was falling. Uh, so, so notice the symptoms that I'm going to talk about. So fatigue, my hair was falling. I would get uh, rashes on my face, not a butterfly rash, but rashes on my face. I would be really sensitive where I wouldn't even be able to put a sweater on because it would, it would hurt so much. I had very bad headaches. And, you know, I just, I didn't, oh, I would get sores in my mouth as well. Mm -hmm. So of course I thought, oh my gosh, I don't even want to think of the word, the L word lupus. Mm -hmm. And so I started getting a lot of lab work done. I started tracking my symptoms, you know, was I sleeping okay? When was it worse? And all that good stuff. Um, went through a couple of rheumatologists, um, some that my sister loved, which I didn't like. So it's good (laughs) to try and find your fit because she would say, he is amazing. And I would say, I don't like him. Um, And so you have to kind of shop around to your best fit. So saw a rheumatologist for about two years. Finally, I got a diagnosis of fibromyalgia. So in between all of that, I would get, you know, uh, I would go in for migraines. So they would tell me you have migraines. They would tell me, you know, do you just need to sleep more? Um, Or, uh, you know, you have myofacial pain. Um, and basically give me pain meds, send me home. Yeah. Well, at least they gave you the pain meds. I mean, that's also one of those things that there are lots of people who go in with pain and the doctor's like, here's some Tylenol. (laughs) Yeah. And with me, it's the opposite. I don't like to take a lot of controlled substances because I know they're very addictive and it was just going to help me that, you know, during that time. But what happens when you're in this major pain every day, all day, and I need to be able to function and work. And, um, So I, you know, we went through a lot of lab work, um, ruled out that it was not lupus. Uh, Actually, about two years ago, there was a a lupus uh, lab lab or a lab that created a lupus test. So I was tested for that. And they told me there was no way I was going to get lupus. And I said, amazing. I can Mm -hmm. take any diagnosis at this point. So I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia, which I knew a lot about, about because a lot of the lupus patients do live with fibromyalgia. And unfortunately, my daughter, who is now 18, was diagnosed with fibromyalgia when she was 13. Wow. So So this is something you're really familiar with. Yeah. So I, you know, I knew that and I thought, okay, I guess I'll take fibromyalgia over lupus um, (laughs) as if I had a choice. Right. Right. So, so, Um, you know, it is, it it is, there's a lot of, um, similarities with Mm -hmm. the symptoms. So it was a very scary for us, but 
knowing that at least, you know, we could use different treatments that would help me. For me, uh, deep tissue massage sometimes mm-hmm. helps. Cupping, uh, acupuncture. So and, holistic methods. Yes, mm-hmm. a lot of that. And I try to go that, that route, and it doesn't work for everyone. We're all different, but it helped me a lot. And I think what, what helped me is the fact that, you know, I kind of, and I, and I don't know if, if your mind kind of helps you, but I, I wanted that to help me so bad because I didn't want to take the meds. Um, so my daughter also, you know, acupuncture, she tried acupuncture. It doesn't work as well for her, for her, you know, she does a lot of topicals. Um, and you know, that helps, but yeah, it's been a journey for us. Yeah. It's really interesting because you also mentioned before we started the interview that your mom briefly had drug-induced lupus, which was temporary and has since subsided. But, you know, the two of you have two very serious diagnoses. It sounds like the fibromyalgia diagnosis for you, Estella, was very recent, like within the last year or two, right? Yes. So that's a... Sorry, go ahead. ...since I was 15. Wow. So this is, even though it was longstanding, this this was Mm -hmm. sort of a shift in identity in many ways, I imagine. And it's very sweet because, I mean, I, I kind of wish everyone could watch me filming this with you guys because, um, you know, while you were telling your story, Estella, Juana reached over and like tucked something under your, your shirt sleeve. And yeah. so there's obviously a lot of love and care between the two of you and in your family. We're like best friends, best sisters. <laughs> we do all of our traveling for advocacy together. I love you know, that. We're at my house, so she comes over. So, you know. Yeah. And I mean, that seems to have been true for both of you through your diagnosis journeys as well. And through your treatment journeys that like you've both shown up for each other. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, would you say that having that advocate there, that the advocacy roles that you've both stepped into, not only for yourselves, but for each other has bonded you even closer than you were before these diagnoses? I think we were always very close since we since we were little. I am the oldest of seven, wow. so um, when and I'm six years older than my yeah. sister. Mm. Uh, so since I was very young, I started taking the role as a mom. Mm. So I feel very very close not only to Estella but to all my siblings. Mm. So yeah, I think we've always been very close. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Now with this advocacy and and. Um, everything that we're doing, it has, it is not that it has brought us closer is that we're doing and spending more time together Mm. because we do so much together. Um, though we, even before we were, um, doing what we're doing, we would call each other every day morning. Uh, at one point when we were young, uh, we actually worked together, and I mean, our age difference is, I mean, it's six years yet we still managed and we always wanted to do things together. Yeah. I think that's just so lovely. And like just seeing that closeness and openness that you two have with each other, which has also got to be something that really underlines and highlights the work that you do as advocates for other people. You know, you're showing up as a family to offer services that are for families um, and for individuals looking for community and family. And we're going to get into it, but I want to know, while we're still talking about your particular illnesses, what a typical day is looking like for each of you and and how you're balancing the demands of work and life as you work around your body's flares and and potential symptoms. Like, you know, I'm thinking about 
especially Juana, when you were going to the doctor years ago, you know, every couple of days, how are you doing that with work? You know, um, I have been working for um, LA County for the past 26 years. Wow. So I have been blessed to have uh, a good supervisor that has supported me. Uh, initially, they didn't know my diagnosis, yet uh, I had the support to take the time. Mm. And I always managed to, okay, well, I'll take a lunch time, or I'll go during my lunch, or um, where I would go get my lab work, it would be after hours. So I had that flexibility. Mm. Uh, but yeah, uh, I mean, I have, I've been able to manage uh, my condition or lupus and my work, um, I have not stopped working except for the times that I have been hospitalized right. in ICU. But I, I, I try my best uh, because I feel, and this is something that I felt from the beginning, I feel that if I stop, I'm stopping yeah. and I'm raising everything. And I can't, I'm not ready to do that. Yeah. I have gone to work in a lot of pain. I do get mm. a lot of assistance at work where um if I need to work, um, I usually, the type of work that I do, I have to go and visit clients. So I know that on a hot day, I cannot go because I have sun sensitivity. So yeah. I manage to work around that or work at a later time where the, the sun is, is down. Hmm. Um, but I have been able to manage that. And I don't feel that I'm ready to stop hmm. Uh, uh, now or even before, because I feel that it's kind of like giving up mm-hmm. and I'm not ready to do that. Well, that, that whole idea that if you like stop your trajectory, whether it's in work or otherwise, that there is, yeah, that element of like, all right, I guess we just give up and we stop now. And that's when the body takes over and, and maybe wins and we can't let that happen. I mean, and I'm not saying that that works for everyone and that everyone is going to think the same. Um, but for me, that's what's helping me. Um, just, con- I mean, just to continue um, my, my life. That's what's working mm. for me because I know that uh, another thing that I don't want to get affected is with mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, I do have the support and I think that's what's really helping me a lot, but I, I know I get sad, depressed if I'm not doing anything. Yeah. So I keep myself busy all the time. Yeah. And what about you, Estella? How has that looked for you? For me, uh, you know, I, I, I work and I drive a lot as well. So I also mm-hmm. have to visit clients. Um, so it's, it, at days it, it was really hard because, mm-hmm. you know, I couldn't, there were days where I couldn't even get in my car without having difficulty. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there were days where I would drive like long drives, like I'm talking about an hour and a half commute and sitting down in the same position in traffic. Um, it was horrible, but I knew that, you know, I needed to keep, keep fighting. I'm one of those, you know, we just have to keep moving on. Um, so yeah, it, it affects me. It has affected me. Um, but now, you know, I'm more in control of it. I, you know, set my mind to think about other things, think of, you know, just be positive and, and that helps me through the day. But, you know, there, there are days where it's harder than, than others. Mm. Um, if I didn't have to travel, then I would, you know, if I wasn't feeling well and if I didn't want to drive that far, then I would, you know, schedule my clients that were closer to me. So kind of working with myself too, as to, you know, what is better for me today, you know, preparing for tomorrow. So the same thing, I think. 
Would you say, Estella, that you also have like a supervisor at work, unless you're the one running the show, who, uh, you know, is very understanding of what you're going through as well and works around you? Um, I'll be honest. I, as soon as I was diagnosed, um, I thought it would be best for me to come open it and let him know just in case. Um, so he, you know, he was, he was very, he was okay. He was open about it. And I told him, you know, it doesn't affect me. I will let you know, like, I'm letting you know, not for pity and not for you to be lenient with me. I'm letting you know, because what one, we're in healthcare. So it's good for you to know that if I'm not feeling today as well, you know, then it, that might be it. Um, and also I may, you know, if I may need to take time off to go to the doctor and stuff. That's the only reason I, I opened up to him. Um, but you know, he, he was really understanding. Um, he understands, you know, what we have to do, you know, take care of ourselves and, you know, not, not a big deal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> was it's kind it- of wonderful. Cause like what I'm hearing from both of you is that there's a combination of really understanding supervision at work, uh, mental health support and, and really emotional support from family. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and also being aware enough of your bodies to be able to, sort of sidestep when things are, or not necessarily sidestep, but work around what you need for your body within the workday and and what needs to get done. Mm -hmm. And as well as some of these holistic methods that Estella, you had mentioned earlier, you know, like whether it's like, okay, we need to go for a deep tissue massage on the weekend or something like that to like keep you going. So you really seem to be very on top of access to all of these treatments and I'm wondering like how you got there. Was that something where like when you both had your diagnoses, you knew like, okay, I'm entitled to take care of myself. Like where did that self-empowerment come from? You know, I think since we were young, um, my dad who was always active, he wanted us always to be exercising. He, uh, he had uh, a soccer team. So we were very involved in being outdoors. So that I think was a huge motivator. There was no, I'm sleeping in today. Um, so from that part with my dad, it was always like exercise, move, keep your body moving. And uh, with my mom's side, you know, the reason we wear makeup and stuff and do our hair is because my mom used to always tell us this, if you look good, you will feel good. So it was always, you know, her motivation and inspiration to you get up, you know, and you keep, keep going, you know, curl. If you don't have enough makeup, like just curl your eyelashes, put some lip gloss, put your hair back and you're good. So we kind of learned it from them, I think. And, um, as far as self-care, you know, we researched a lot because in order for us to be able to help others, you kind of need to know, you know, yourself, you have to try things out. So we tried a lot of holistic methods. We researched a lot, you know, we didn't just go Google, um, you know, we would ask providers, we would try things out and not, not everything works for everyone. So, you know, like I was telling you, acupuncture works for me. It didn't work for my daughter as much as it did for me. Um, and some insurances don't even cover it. So you kind of have to figure out what works for you, Mm -hmm. but those, those things, I think our parents, the way that we were raised, uh, um, was, is really has made a huge impact on how we live our lives. Mm -hmm. We're also very open. We talk about how we feel. We talk about, you know, if we're not feeling well, so we can support each other. So that Mm -hmm. was kind of, um, also, I think one of the key things, right, that we talk to each other. So if she's not feeling well, I could see it in her eyes. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
I know when she's lying and she's like, I'm good. I'm like, no, you're not. (laughs) So, um, you know, so just, I think, I don't know. I think it's mainly our parents and the way we were brought up. Right. 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 And just, yeah, our parents and how we were brought up and, and then knowing that we just knowing the support from one another. Yeah. yeah. You have that unbreakable bond of support with one another. So like you always have someone who has your back, which has got to be hugely comforting. And you know, it gives you more of a sense of peace in the midst of like the chaos of the healthcare system, for example. Oh, yes. <laughs> I know that's like a whole other, you know, um, yeah. so it, it has helped a lot, though, that I was exposed to healthcare since I was like yes. 17. So knowing, you know, what an HMO plan, what a PPO plan, what an authorization is and the hurdles um, mm-hmm. has helped a lot. The good thing is, you know, we have a, a great um, insurance, so mm-hmm. we are able to get the care that we need and get the coverage that we need. So we've been pretty blessed when it comes to that. That's amazing. Yeah, having that sort of insider knowledge, I bet makes a huge difference. And we're gonna talk about that a little later, but I wanna swing back to, I mean, earlier on in Juana's story, right? There was this doctor who wanted to write you off as an hysterical woman, (laughs) right? Um, And I'm wondering between the two of you, what situations you've been in where you've been confronted and forced to validate the existence of your symptoms or your diagnosis to people who just couldn't understand it because they couldn't see it. What has those, what have those situations looked like? How have they played out for you? Well, I know uh, on another occasion where I, I knew I wasn't right. I, I wasn't feeling well. I called uh, to make an appointment to see my rheumatologist immediately to me. It was like, I need to be seen today right now. I actually called. They said that they didn't have anything available. I went in person. They didn't have anything available. They sent me home. And it got to the point where I said, there is, there's no way I'm going to um, go through this day without, you know, meeting with a doctor. So finally, what I did, I went to see my hematologist. And when he saw me walking in, uh, I was in so much pain. I, it was so hard for me to breathe because I also have problems with the lungs because of the lupus. Uh, uh, so he right away said, um, why haven't you seen you a rheumatologist? And I said, well, I've been calling. They don't want to see me. They don't said, they, they're saying that they don't have any uh, availability. And he said, oh no, she's going to see you right now. From his office, I walked to the rheumatologist office and I was, I was pretty bad. Mm-hmm. I, I was doing very well. And of course, you know, prednisone went up and um, medications changed. But I, I, I mean, I, I think I've had to fight a few times with doctors because they don't believe or they don't see that we are really in pain. Uh, with me, um, a lot of the times I have high tolerance for, for pain. So they don't see and they know that I'm working or that I'm walking or I'm driving. They don't I don't know if I'm not showing the pain that I'm going through, but I know that when I'm not okay, I am not okay. Like you reach your own limit. Like you have a limit at which it's like, okay, I can't fake it anymore. But it sounds like it also makes a difference that you have providers who know you and perhaps have worked with you for a long time. So like, this is a really good tip actually, right? Like if you can't get in to see one specialist, maybe see another because they might be able to help pivot into deeper care for you. Hematologist was uh, meeting with me on a weekly basis. So he knew that when I told him I'm not okay, he knew I wasn't okay. So right away, 
with, um, from his office, I walked to the rheumatologist because he knew I wasn't okay. Yeah. And, um, yeah. That's also one of the benefits of having doctors in the same healthcare system or in the same hospital, right? Because sometimes you can walk from one office to the other if necessary. Yes. yes. Yeah. That, mm. That's been a great benefit for us. Like I mentioned earlier, uh, when I had the blood work, uh, the lab was within the same building. So I was able to do that, but not everyone can do that or has that access. Absolutely. And what about you, Estella? Have you been in situations where you've had to justify the fibro to people? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I remember, I think, um, I, and then I'll, I won't forget this day. That was probably the worst days where I could um, literally say that my pain was the worst ever. And I drove myself to the urgent care and, you know, they were like, Oh, you're fine. Your, you know, your blood pressure is normal, you know? And Mm -hmm. I, and I, and I was like, Oh my gosh, like, I can't believe that you don't believe that I'm in pain. I couldn't even walk. I couldn't, it was just so hard. And I wanted to just cry. And I did end up crying out of frustration because they thought probably thought I was drug seeking. Um, even though I had not, um, taken any, you know, Vicodin, they were prescribed to me in the past, you know, I've had kidney stones. So, you know, they always, they have given me even up to Percocet because of kidney stones, but I don't take the medication. And, and so they're like, well, why are you here? I'm like, this is different. This is, this pain is horrible. Mm. I couldn't breathe. I thought I was having like a heart attack as well because wow. of my chest area was hurting my arms, my shoulders, everything you can think of the air would hurt me. And if mm. you have fibromyalgia or lupus, when I say the air hurts you, you guys know what I mean. Yeah. Um, the air was hurting me. They literally, um, you know, after fighting and saying, I'm in pain, I'm in pain. The doctor that came in, you know, and I talked to him and I literally cried and I said, I have never had this much pain. So we're talking a little bit more. I had to explain myself to him. My blood pressure, I think at that point was what they considered normal was 130 over, I think, 80 or something mm-hmm. like that. They're like, oh, you're still normal. And I said, oh, no, wait, my normals go to my normals. My normals mm-hmm. are 90 over 60. I'm a little wow. chunky, but those are my normals. So knowing your numbers plays a huge role. So once he started looking at that, he knew 90 over 60. Now we're looking at 130. This girl is there's something going on. She's not lying. So he started believing me. He immediately gave me a shot, a pain medication. Um, you know, and I laid down, I also had a migraine, so they turned off the light. So, but it took me to fight for him to understand me and cry for him to know that I was serious about this. And, you know, also explaining all my symptoms and my vitals and everything, um, to him also helped me, uh, helped him understand. Okay, guys, I want to talk about coaching. I recently connected with an awesome executive and life coach, and her name is Jenna Chieko, a graduate of Dr. Martha Beck's program with a background in psychology and law. She's a former tech general counsel and chief of staff who also worked for the Obama administration. Jenna inspires clients to step into their best lives by helping them access their inner strengths, clear the cobwebs holding them back, and cultivate a dream big growth mindset. She is also a life Sherpa for navigating change. You know who I know who has big dreams and is navigating massive changes now more than ever with coronavirus? We Spoonies. Jenna works virtually and she's offering 10% off to new clients who enroll and mention code INVISIBLE. 
Her rates are reasonable, and she's dedicated to help us rise to the top. Go to jennachieco.com, that's G-E-N-A-C-H-I-E-C-O.com for more. But it was- I mean, that's got to be frustrating too, though. And this is like, this is another good set of tips, right? Like if you're in an emergency situation with your pain um, and needing treatment, and as many people are considered drug seekers, right, when they walk into an urgent care and need pain medication, but really just, it's frustrating that you had to explain yourself to the doctor when they could have looked at your chart and that would have been enough if they'd looked at your health history. But, um, the fact that they did look when you asked them to, and like began to take you seriously is great. But, you know, I'm wondering with situations like this, whether there's a prejudice at play, whether that's gender or racially based and between the two of you, you know, can you see the way that you present yourselves? I mean, you talked earlier about like, oh, we, we wear makeup and we do our hair, you know. Can you see your circumstances in some of these situations perhaps being different if you presented differently? Like if you were white women or if you were men walking into these offices, do you think that there would have been so much of a delay in people taking you seriously? Oh, no, definitely. Um, everyone, I think even though we don't say it, I think there's always some sort of, this is how you should look like if you're in pain. Mm-hmm. Um, I will be honest, um, that day I was like, should I like remove my makeup and be like, excited yeah. to see so yeah. I can. We hear stories where people are like, okay, that's the strategy today. Today we're going without yeah. the makeup. Yeah. It's like, let me put my bun up or something. But I'm like, you know, I, it's unbelievable. I do see it. I do notice it. I think the way, the way we're dressed, uh, the fact that we wear our makeup and we do our hair, um, you know, that plays a huge role. I think the mm-hmm. fact that we're women also does affect uh, that and the pain. You know, we, you know, when we're walking in and we say that we're in pain, it, it, we are going to be taken differently. And I think there's even statistics that have shown that men actually get, you know, their medication or pain medication um, and they're treated different than, than us women. So I think that mm. does exist. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting too, because if we look at uh, the opioid crisis itself, I mean, the large number of people who are addicted to opioids are actually white people. Cause a lot of it started in, you know, Western Virginia, I believe was the sort of hotbed where a lot of it started. And it's fascinating to me because I hear stories like this from people with many different backgrounds and identities and, um, knowing that you two are women of color as well, like this, to me, it's like, it has to play a role. Like, you know, you walk into an urgent care and you say that you're in pain immediately. You're considered a drug seeker, not only because you're women, but also because you're not white people, even though white people are the problem. Right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I mean, it's true. (laughs) I mean, from, from what I'm gathering from the stories that I've heard and also, you know, the research that I've done, like, it seems like this is, this is medical bias in action. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's multifaceted because as we said, it's not just about race. It's also about gender. It's about so, and it's about the way that you're walking in with or without the makeup even. Exactly. Down to those details. Would you say that, that these inequities in the healthcare system, race, gender, or otherwise are a public health crisis? I think it is. Yeah. I will be honest with you, you know, um, the way we look, whether it's the color of our skin, uh, whether you're, you know, your gender, whatever it is, I think there is a huge bias. Mm, absolutely. Would you agree too, Juana? Yes, definitely. 
Yeah. yeah. There's lots of nodding here. So yeah. <laughs> let's, let's pivot. I'm going to briefly pivot away from healthcare, but I'm going to come back. Don't worry. <laughs> and I want you guys to talk to us about Looms for Lupus. How did you start your work as advocates for others? And uh, where did you, I know there's a story behind the name. So talk to us about how this all manifested and how you became advocates yourselves. Okay. So I'll start. So when my sister was diagnosed with lupus, you know, one of the things she was talking about is the methotrexate and, you know, what the chemo pill treatment and how mental health plays a huge role in someone living with a chronic illness. For her, she needed to be active. She couldn't be just at home sitting down, you know, resting. So that um, is kind of what triggered us to know that we needed to be more active and learning about the illness, not only learning about the illness, but learning about the um, the treatments and the medications and how they were in, they were going to uh, make her feel. So kind of being open about it. So we knew that we needed to understand and learn more. There wasn't a lot of awareness. There wasn't a lot of information in Spanish, which is why we kind of figured we need to advocate also, and we need to raise awareness in Spanish and raise awareness in regards to lupus, because a lot of uh, the minority groups are the ones that are impacted with lupus. So uh, the Black African American uh, community, Hispanic, Latino, Native American, American and Asian Pacific Islanders. Um, so we knew that the, that we needed to do something because we didn't find a lot of support. So that was number one. And then um, the loom knitting, uh, which is one of the crafts that she would do at home. And she actually, and you know, we won't talk about it too much into detail because we, we still need to patent it. Uh, but she oh. created a way to um, to loom knit where she, you know, she wouldn't use her um, fingers as much. Um, so that's a for the joints. Yes. Yes. For the joints because of a rheumatoid arthritis. So, and we would get together at my mom's house and she would bring her loom knitting kit and my mom would loom knit and also would knit like, you know, in Mexico, they do a lot of knitting. So my mom knows how to knit all kinds of creative things and my sister-in-law. So we would always get together and we thought, oh my gosh, like we need to do this and bring other families. So that's where Looms for Lupus came about, which is Looms, which Loom Knitting uh, for Lupus. And then we wanted to knit a community of hope. So we wanted to Love bring that. hope to others. Yes. And uh, our third, one of, there's five Mata sisters. So one of my, one of our younger sisters is uh, in law enforcement. So she's a police officer. And she uh, was a community liaison and she found out that there was going to be a lupus walk. So she's like, oh my gosh, we need to do this. This is like five months into mm-hmm. her diagnosis. And so we wanted to get together. We did, we did a lupus walk and we thought, Hey, you know, we need to have a logo. We need to have a team. So my younger sister uh, was the one that created the, the logo with a butterfly and the looms for lupus. Um, and there came about the organization we figured, you know, we're doing this for ourselves. We need someone to support my mom, to, someone to support the family, and someone to support the, the those that are living with this condition. So that's- and the children as well, because I know that for me, I had my my two younger sons, um, and or my two sons that were very young. So I know that they needed to learn and know that there was support within our family, but we have caregivers for that. Right. Yeah. Show them that there's support out there. So that was one of the reasons that we, um, we started. um, 
Yes. I love that because it's making me think also, Estella, about your daughter living with fibromyalgia. Like being born into a family of advocates must make that whole journey a lot more palatable and sort of manageable from a certain perspective too. Yes. Yes. And it can be overwhelming, but you know, we'll get back to that because I do have something amazing to tell you about the advocacy work. Um, and, and, and our daughters and, and my daughters and her and her son's role in all this. Um, so when we started, um, you know, creating this, we said, not everyone's going to loom it. You know, not everyone knows how to do this. Not everybody's going to want to do this. So we decided to bring in different crafts. So we knew that keeping our minds busy and getting together in a mm-hmm. circle was not going to be for everyone and not everyone wanted to loom it. So we created workshops. So during our support groups, not only did we invite caregivers, loved ones, kids as well, it was for the whole family, and it was a time to get together to talk about lupus, learn about lupus, and craft together. So we do vision boards, we, you know, create little keychains, we do a lot of art therapy, mandala coloring, I mean, we do it all. Uh, Of course, right now with COVID, it's been hard, but, you know, those were the things that we wanted to focus on is creating arts and crafts and through that having a community where people could bring their kids, their loved ones, their supporters. And for those that didn't have the support system, because not everyone does, you know, they would come up alone and they would have, you know, a mother figure, a father figure uh, and children as well. So, you know, it was, it was really fun uh, to have an art. Uh, there's actually a picture of our first support group. We didn't have anybody. No one came in besides our family. And but that's my, someone. That's something, you know. Yeah. And my sister was showing my daughter how to loom knit. Mm-hmm. And my daughter was probably like five years old. Oh, wow. Six years old. Yeah, six. six because six. it's been like 11 years. Six, six or seven. Six seven. or seven. And, um, and that picture's there. And we were at a walk, a lupus walk, two years ago. And my... I took the same picture and I posted and I Mm -hmm. thought, Oh my gosh, like these girls grew up, Mm -hmm. you know, knowing and learning about Mm -hmm. all of this and which helped my daughter a lot when she was diagnosed with with uh, fibromyalgia at the age of 13. Yeah. You know, you know, talking about your symptoms and talking about how you're feeling is not something that a lot of 13 year olds do, Mm -hmm. you know, and for her to be able to do that and bring it up to us was huge. And yeah. then also the mental health aspect of it, you know, you're going through the hormones, you're going through, you know, the phase, yeah, what a time, phase. what a time to get hit with this and living with migraines as well. Mm-hmm. So I think it helped her uh, also communicate. It also helped her learn how to track her symptoms, mm-hmm. which got her a sooner diagnosis than, than I did. Wow. Just amazing. I, I'm, I'm like, Everything that you guys do is like, it's so impressive to me. And what I love is that there's such a focus on community because I think a lot of people outside the chronic illness community don't necessarily realize how important these communities are to those of us who are within the Spoonie community. You know, how much we find that we really need to lean on one another and talk about our feelings and learn. You know, we're all hungry to learn more about what we're going through, what our friends are going through. So that you're creating this community base through activities, through keeping the mind and the body active is just, I mean, does it get much better than that? You know, right. And all these things are, they're therapeutic. I mean, you hear about art therapy a lot, 
10 years ago when we were doing the support group. I think, you know, a lot of people think of a support group like I, and that's what I kind of thought too, the AA groups, you know, my name is, and we didn't want to do that. We didn't want people to think that that's what it was about. And Mm -hmm. so we were, you know, we're like, we need to create something different. So that is what has made us unique throughout this whole time is that we've always had that. And now when you, you know, you hear about it, like mindfulness and meditation and all this, it's like, we kind of learned these breathing techniques, which helped me a lot with anxiety. Um, when we were there, we would start off the day with like a five minute, like, this is how you do a deep breath. This is how, you know, you, this is what mindfulness is. You know, you focus on this, you touch this, you, you know, so it's been really, really amazing to be able to teach that to um, the kids and to everyone that goes there. Right. Right. And it was so interesting, not too long ago, maybe last month, uh, during a support group, um, via zoom, one of the ladies, um, shared that she had been diagnosed with lupus for the past 10 years Mm. and she had never attended a support group because she felt that, why am I going to attend a support group? It's going to be so depressing. I'm going to get to hear people with all their problems or all their pains. And um, before, you know, the, the, the session ended, she thanked us and said that she was so happy that it wasn't what she thought. So she said she was going to continue to join our support groups because yeah. she it was something completely different than what she thought it was going to be like. So yeah. all support groups um, are not always depressing. We do try to make it um, as fun as we can. And we do different crafts, like Estela said, so that we can not only focus on the negatives because there's a lot of negatives with our, all, with our conditions, mm. but we try to focus in the positive. And another thing that Estela usually uh, does, and when we do go out to the community, we do a lot of uh, positive affirmations. I love that. Mm. So you're really sharing mental health coping techniques as well with this mindfulness stuff. I love it because like LA is such a place for all of the mindfulness and meditation stuff, but it's true. Yeah, and it, it but it wasn't like the, you know, something that you talked about a lot, you know, yeah. again, years ago. Right now you hear about it more, which is great because, you know, we're all learning all these things that, that help us. Uh, but, you know, going back to um, why this is good and why it's good to have kids involved in all of these activities and, and everything and talking to them is, one, it helped my daughter get her diagnosis a lot sooner. Two, she knows how to advocate for herself. So she can now, if she was going in a room with, you know, her five physicians, because, you know, that's one of the things that we, I was so blessed with. She had a physical therapist, a psychologist, a Mm. psychiatrist. She had her um, social, like everyone, the pain medicine, um, everyone was in the one room together. And at 17, I think she was going to be 17. She was able to go in there by herself. Because she was confident enough to be able to let them know how she was feeling, how yeah. she was doing, what her symptoms had been like, if something helped her, if something didn't. Gosh, so, that's amazing. I'm 37 and I still bring my mother to appointments. So <laughs> that's pretty amazing. <laughs> it's good support though. And now, you know, because of Melissa, our friend Melissa, um, she, we did the first fibromyalgia advocacy day mm. last year in 2019. My daughter, it was her first time. So she went in and, you know, she was 17 then. Mm -hmm. And my other daughter who was 21 
went along with her. So kind of like a sister duo. Mm. Um, and she was able to share her story with legislators. So that was pretty amazing. And wow. in March this year, we went for the second time. And this time around, I didn't even go in with her. She went on her own with my <gasps> sister and her sister. Yeah. Oh, so that's just so sister. incredible. Yes. And, yeah. you know, it's pretty amazing to see. At first I thought, oh, my God, I was the one that was nervous. How is she going to do? Like, these are legis- like our congresswoman, like, she's going to meet with her. And, mm. you know, how is she going to do? And she was amazing, right? Yeah, definitely. She did great. So we allowed her. Well, I was with her. So she was the one that I told her, you do the talking. She did all the talking. And, of course, the uh, um, legislators will, would ask her questions. And she was very comfortable responding. Wow. So what kind of legislation um, changes are you two trying to work toward with both Support Fibromyalgia and other organizations? Yeah. So we have gone to DC for a couple of reasons. So we've gone for lupus advocacy. We go with Lupus Research Alliance. Um, Every year we've been going and we um, not only do we raise awareness, but we also wanted increased funds in for the NIH for research Mm -hmm. and also for the Department of Defense for the lupus. And now they now have a category for that. So in the Department of Defense? Yeah. Department of Defense um, for for lupus. So mm-hmm. my sister actually, um, you know, has, has spoken and, and shared her wow. story as a lupus patient. And I've gone in to share my story as a, as a caregiver and, a, a loved one. Um, wow. so we have been able to do that for now three years. Okay. And, um, and then for fibromyalgia, what we're trying to do is I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but the way fibromyalgia, it's not even categorized the same The NIH has, I mean, everyone, everyone has, has a different categorization. Different. So we're trying to get some sort of classification to be standardized. And then we also want, of course, more funding for mm-hmm. and research for fibromyalgia. So that's what we that is incredible. Talk to me about this Department of Defense thing, because I'm a little confused as to why the Department of Defense needs to have a chronic illness focus. Can you they, help me understand they that? Research. They actually do research. Oh, my they goodness. Research. They have like a whole classification of different um, conditions. They wow. didn't have a lupus condition until 2017. Wow. Okay. And that was our first time we went to DC. Um, and you know, we, we have been able to, uh, increase that if for every time we've gone. Um, so that's been pretty amazing. Um, Yeah. So your, your work is already making dividends in the sense that like you're creating change in the moment as we speak, like, I mean, you're doing it. Yeah. And the movers and the shakers, uh, you know, to me, I think these, national organizations like the lupus research alliance lupus foundation of america they're the the ones that organize all of this but the stories that come in with these advocates is really what changes everything and you know it's it's so interesting and you'll see this on a video that i just created about mm-hmm. why why your story matters yeah and you know it made make it makes change and it matters because it's about you we just and need legislators to like listen to my podcast to hear right. some of these stories, right? I mean, it's like unreal the stories I hear that it's like cool. So put some money into changing medical bias. Put yeah. some money into this illness. Put some money into that pain medication. I mean, I truly, wish it was that easy, you know. I right? know, right? <laughs> I'm like, 
podcast, let's do a podcast on a specific, you know, bill. But what we usually do is you find out what's really going on and what's going to impact the community. You know, there's a lot of bills that are going out and, and stuff. So you research it and then you go and you speak to your local legislators about, mm-hmm. you know, do you want them to support it and why you want them to support it and how it would impact your life and you know, those living with those conditions. So that's really what speaking to these legislators is about. So, you know, we don't obviously write all the bills. We just go and support and we talk about them. So that's, you yeah. know, pretty amazing. But that's incredible. I mean, part of that is also a lesson to others who are tuning in that like, you can be engaged civically. You just have to do the research, right? Yes. Do the research and show up. Yes, do the research, show up, and you don't have to go to Washington, D.C. to be heard. Mm -hmm. You know, you could do it from your living room, from your couch, from your bed. You can send an email to your legislator. You can actually, you know, we we usually ask for proclamations, which is what we, we, that's one way to raise awareness, is we get proclamations from our local city uh, mayor and, um, you know, declaring like May for Lupus Awareness Month, Mm -hmm. we're now asking for uh, fibromyalgia awareness month for the month of May as well and for mm-hmm. mental health. So those are the three things we obviously advocate for. Uh, you know, there's just so many overlapping conditions, so it's kind of hard to mention them all, yeah. but we welcome everyone with any chronic condition, overlapping condition to join us because we know that support is needed regardless of what condition you have. We know that your loved ones need the support. We know that you need to learn from others and share your story. And, you know, basically that's why um, we've been able to continue to to do this and obviously collaborating with other organizations. Yeah. Well, and did you think that you would be getting into the political side of things when you started this support group? No, I I thought that I love it. Yeah. Scary. (laughs) Right? Right, right. Yeah, not in a million years would I thought that uh, I would be so involved with the community the way we are because of a diagnosis. So Mm -hmm. I have uh, said um, a few times already that I am not happy that I have lupus, but I am so grateful in a way that because of lupus, I have been making a difference. I have met so many people. I have, I have been doing things that I would have never done. It's contributed to your legacy really to have this diagnosis. And speaking of legacy, and she hates when I say this, but you know, she was woman of the year for (sighs) district 48 uh, ago. And, um, you know, we were able to fly to Sacramento and she, got an award and I mean that Lana that's amazing yeah, and that's in the, the women caucus I mean her name yeah. will forever be there when I walked into we mm-hmm. walked into the rotunda and her name was there wow we were in tears <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I don't think that um we've realized the impact and everything that we're doing is, mm-hmm. is just incredible um she deserves it she definitely <laughs> deserves it this is this is the nominating panels you right. know, heads up over here. Estella's turn is next. Right, yeah. right. Because she does so much. Mm. She is not only supporting lupus patients, caregivers, but she does a lot, a lot. I mean, yeah. it's incredible. Um, my sister Estella is very knowledgeable. I mean, she is great. Estella is shaking her head like, "Come on now." <laughs> no, she no. does amazing work. Yeah. I mean, it's really incredible that you've been able to have these opportunities because you've made them right because you've been outspoken, but also that you've been able to partner with these other organizations, which is so much about how this community 
it becomes even more tightly knit forgive the pun here with the looms and the knitting, but you know, that like we all need to work together more. And, and, you know, if we're aware of one illness, we need to become aware of the comorbidities and we need to become aware of all of this stuff, but how people can also make a difference from a local level and it can go, it can gain traction and size, that kind of commitment over time. Exactly. And I think, you know, like you were talking about right now, you learn about other conditions and all these comorbidities and everything else that comes with it. You know, we have learned so much and met so many people. And, you know, there's, there's one thing in common in all of this is just empathy, right? You learn, you then put yourself in that situation and you try to support as much as you can. And I think that's across the board, what we need in, in our community is just to be a little more, you know, empathetic with each other and learn um, how to communicate with each other and support one another. And I think, you know, once we do that, I think we'll be uh, breaking a lot of walls down. You guys are making me very proud to be an Angelino right now. <laughs> I want to briefly swing back to the healthcare system before we move into some fun top three lists. And given the experiences that you've both had and Estella, I know you work in the healthcare system too. What are the pros and cons of our U.S. healthcare system as it is? You know, are there upsides and downsides uh, to your experiences? Um, You know, for me, it's been good because, like I said, you know, and I think we we share the same thing Mm -hmm. because we have the same, similar plan programs. Um, Having an electronic health records, um, having the providers share that electronic health record, having them share the labs, uh, the consult reports from other providers helps tremendously. Being able to go from one specialist to another right after, mm-hmm. you know, a direct referral uh, without having to wait for an authorization has been super helpful. My sister is alive today because she was able to be transferred from regular urgent care to emergency room to ICU within minutes. So we've been blessed in that, um, in that aspect. Um, now we have seen the other side of it as well, where, you know, our other family members have, uh, an HMO or are through different plans and they have to wait for a authorization and they need to have a specific diagnosis for that authorization. It then needs to go to utilization review and management review to then get approved. Then your doctor has to try and follow up if they have time and then get back. And if they remember. (laughs) And if they remember, get back to you to see if it was uh, denied or approved. And if it was denied, you know, what process you have to go through all of this. So, and by then you could be declining in health that whole time. Exactly. Or dying. Um, And so that has been like, we see it a lot. Um, again, and with just using our, our family members. Also, besides the HMO, if you're if you're lucky, you're in an HMO program, you at least have coverage, right? We've also seen where you have the regular medical coverage, where not every specialist takes straight medical, and even though yes, you could be seen anywhere, you know not everyone takes your type of insurance. So, or if they do, the waiting period is 
three to six months. So then you have those hurdles to, to, to battle. So, and then not having, and, and having uh, different doctors and different providers to go from one place to the other. If you don't keep track of your chart, if you don't keep copies of your labs, then everything gets lost in translation. If that doctor closes their office, you don't have the medical records anymore. So, you know, we've, we've seen it all. So one of the things that we also during our support group, we teach everyone and we incorporate is patient empowerment, right? Mm -hmm. My sister's alive today because she used Mm -hmm. her voice because she said, there is something wrong with me. These are my symptoms. This is how I feel. And I'm not leaving. So that is huge. One taking, um, you know, taking control of your, um, I, I want to say like your illness, but even if you're healthy, taking control of your well-being. Um, so keeping track of your medical records, asking for copies when you go to a specialist, if they're not under the same electronic me- medical record system, you get copies of your consult when you leave. You get copies of your lab reports when you leave because your lab reports are different than what the doctor writes on their consult. You also need to know your numbers. You know, you know, you, you, mm-hmm. you, you talked about her platelets at 99 going down to two and your blood pressure. Yeah. yeah. My blood pressure, her blood pressure. I mean, okay. these are all different numbers. And, um, when that plays a huge role on one, how you're feeling. And also if you're going to live or die, you kind of need, need to know that. So we, you know, we've seen it all. We've also seen, you know, patients that have great medical care that, uh, if they don't that need mental health mm-hmm. or a therapist, but because they don't have that diagnosis, they, they don't get coverage. So they don't get help. Yeah. You can't appeal that. So people so, fall through the cracks. Yes. Mm-hmm. So there's, we, we have seen a lot of those. So the good thing is again, working with other organizations, you know, we work with the Kaiser Permanente Education Outreach Program where, uh, we actually have a licensed clinical therapist chime in in our support group. So she'll give us wow. stuff. Um, she also, and I say she, because it, it, she's the person that helps us assign to us. Um, her name is Ruth Padilla King, and she has given therapy one-on-one for free for those people that have come to our support group that are not able to get the mental health assistance that they need because they lack the diagnosis. Wow. And that's not the case in everyone, you know, with every support group, but because of the collaboration and the work that we do, you know, for, with others, we're able to provide that. Mm. Um, so that's amazing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you see all these cracks, cracks, and I know I went through into detail, but I wanted to show you how there's, it's not just about having medical care. It's about also having control of your medical care. Yeah. And also it seems connecting with some of these providers who may have an openness and a willingness to really want to help people and will do that outside of the system if necessary. Yes, definitely. Mm. So let's get into some, some fun top three lists here. I would love to get, and I don't know whether you guys want to split them up or each do three, you sort of, we can feel it out, but I want to know what your top three tips are for someone who suspects something's off, you know, maybe they're sort of like, like Juana was before she went in and, you know, stood her ground about her health. What are your top three pieces of advice for people who are living that spoony life, living with invisible illness? Well, one of the first things that I always, uh, that we always talk about is knowing your numbers, keeping track of your symptoms, 
you know, a little notebook, a notepad, just keeping track of your symptoms. And um, I think that's, that's what... Well, it sounds mental health might be on that list too, yeah. 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 yeah just still. knowing your numbers, tracking your symptoms, and um, yeah, just having a, somebody that you can go to for support. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's really, that's very comprehensive. I mean, this has come up quite a few times in this interview, and those are very clear tips that I'm taking away for sure. And knowing, you know, when, when you're tracking your symptoms, you know, when we talk about your daily life, like did something trigger for your headache to be worse today? Did you not sleep last night as well? You know, so tracking all of that may be a little, you know, sometimes people say, I don't like to journal. I'm, I don't like to journal, but you know, I do like to keep track of what I'm feeling or if mm-hmm. I'm getting a new symptom, is it because I took something, you know, uh, is it, you know, due to, is it now you're flaring, you know? So I mean, knowing what triggers your, your aches and pains. Right. Right. And, um, well, paying attention to, to what you're going through. For example, I know that if I go out, um, to the sun, to the sun, I know that tonight I'm not going to be able to move Hmm. knowing, knowing what is triggering, like Estelle said, knowing what's triggering certain conditions certain pains mm. and avoiding that or doing something that's that you're still going to be able to go out but what do I need to do to protect myself so that I don't go through the pains that I'm going to be facing if I don't cover myself yeah. so for me I am very sensitive to the to the sun so I make sure that I, when I do go out and if there is sun that I use protective clothing extra yeah. Um, sunblock or whatever is going to help me to mm. do what I still need to do. Yeah. So, tip one is know your body. Know your numbers. Oh, know your body. Yeah. Um, know your numbers mm-hmm. and, um, and also advocating for yourself. Advocating right? for yourself. And journal it. Journal it if you don't know. Write it down. <laughs> yeah. I love that. What about three things that you'll both turn to when you need a moment of joy? Things that you're unwilling to compromise on. Um, you know, maybe it is the sun and, and the sun is sort of tough to deal with, you know, but maybe you need to get a little dose of it now and then like, what are top three could be guilty pleasures or indulgences or even comfort activities when you're having a flare, but three things that you two turn to, to light yourselves up. You know, it's, it's so interesting because faith for us has been a huge, huge change and shift when she first was diagnosed, you know, uh, we had to turn to something mm. uh, and we turned to faith. So right. for us, um, attending service, which we are lacking right now, um, yeah. was huge and it has played a huge role. So that I think was comforting. Mm-hmm. We knew that if we, we go to service on Sundays, you know, we go together, um, that that would help us. So that for me would be, bring me joy all the yeah. time. Finding something that you like doing. Mm. I like exercising. I like focusing on exercise, focusing on what makes me feel good. Mm. You know, maybe doing. That's true. You do exercise. Exercising. Sometimes I can't do the same exercise every day. I have to modify, but I do. That's what keeps my mind focused on something other than the pain. Self care. I love to do um, different um, 
masks for my face. Right. And I don't go buy them. I make from whatever I have at home. Ooh. I, yes. That's I, another like you gotta do right. you've gotta do one of your meetings around like making your right. own homemade masks. Um, we actually did. We we did a oh, I love that. on one of uh, one of our meetings, mm-hmm. and we do try to do bring different things. But I like to make my own moisturizers. Mm. I do my hair mask. So I do a lot of things for self care, so that I don't I don't focus so much on the negative home spa. Yes, I like to take care of myself. I do my own nails my own pen. And it all looks good. So you're doing a good job. (laughs) That's one thing that I love to do, just Mm. self-care. And I do love to take care of my face. You both have beautiful skin. So yeah, yeah, as much as she does, but for sure, self-care, you know, I can call her, uh, I think calling, that's what bring me, brings me joy, calling my loved one. So mm-hmm. calling her, calling my mom, mm-hmm. you know, our siblings, our, our good friends. So I think, mm-hmm. you know, self-care, exercise, exercise for me, not so much. I know. It's a tough one. I'm with you on that one, Estella, but I have to say I'm like, I'm slowly, slowly changing. I think yeah. all of I'm the fine. quietude of the, the pandemic has made yeah. me go, gosh, I really need to get out. <laughs> Yeah, what brings us joy is definitely family, family. Um, talking mm-hmm. on the phone, and self-care activities. Um, and faith. Yeah. Yeah. faith. I love that. What is your ask for listeners tuning into this episode today? What can they do to support you and the Looms for Lupus community in your continuing work? Yeah. You know, I, I'm very bad at asking. I'm very but great at This giving. is why I'm telling you, <laughs> now you ask. This is your ask space. Yeah. <laughs> As far as asks um, for Looms for Lupus, I would love for people to um, connect with others, Mm -hmm. um, to reach out for support. You know, we have great support groups. Um, We partner with with a lot of organizations. I know I'm not really asking. um, (laughs) Well, you did. You said check us out and follow us. Where where can everyone find you? Oh, well, here's the thing. So maybe I was, I, I was thinking asking like a different kind of ask. I'm like, oh yeah, no, give us a different okay. ask. Give Let us any you. ask you like. So I ask everyone to please tune in to um, our Facebook live. We do support groups mm-hmm. in Spanish every second Saturday of the month through mm-hmm. Facebook. We also have a, a new, uh, uh, well, we actually have a support group, uh, a bilingual support group where we do all of this in person workshops, which we can't right now, but we, every second Saturday of the month in Baldwin park right now, we are doing everything through zoom. So everyone can join. Um, and we have a new series mm-hmm. with uh, a community connect live mm-hmm. with Melissa Talwar from support fibro and Lupus, and it's every Friday at nine 30. Uh, and we're streaming through Twitter, Facebook, and right. And yeah, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. So we are going to be live every Friday, bringing all the support mm-hmm. to the community. And that's nine 30 AM. 9.30 a.m. Pacific time. Yes. I love that. Yeah. And where can they find you on social media and on the internet? So Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, it's all under at Looms for Lupus. So L-O-O-M-S for L-U-P-U-S. Um, so they, we could be found there, but also they can find us, our personal pages under Juana Mata and Estela Mata. And, but we do mostly everything through Looms for Lupus. I love that. And what's next in your advocacy journeys, as well as your wellness journeys, your personal wellness stories, what's next for both of you? 
Okay, so do you want to uh, What's next? Mm-hmm. I'm blanked out right now. So. <laughs> I know. If we've gotten to brain fog okay, space. There's, there's a few things that we're doing. Uh, we are, um, uh, well, uh, the support group, that's one thing that we, we do once a month. But, and now with uh, Support Fiber with Melissa, and what else are we doing? I'll tell you what's, what, because I just I was thinking that. Um, so we do have a wellness day coming up, May, coming up next year. We originally had it planned for this year where it's going to be a wellness day. It's going to be free for 150 people with living with lupus fibromyalgia and their loved ones. And what we're going to be doing is different workshops of everything that we incorporate into, um, you know, just our regular self-care, whether it's mindfulness, meditation, art therapy. Um, and we have special speakers. We have, you know, uh, Dr. Matias, he's a rheumatologist. We are going to have Dr. Lenata, who is a researcher, and we're going to have also our Congresswoman, um, there attending. We had to reschedule twice this year because of the, of COVID we had it originally for May, then moved it to September. Obviously we can't do it now. So we're going to be moving it to May of next year. So that's coming up, but every second Saturday we have, you know, the support groups, mm-hmm. uh, you know, live and, um, in, on social media, mm-hmm. uh, we do pop on Instagram live every now and then to give all these updates. So, um, that's really what we have coming up next. Um, we are very involved with research. I mean, there's a lot that we're doing. Um, I don't even know where to go. Like when it comes to mental health, we're very supportive with the mental health community. We're part of the mental health consortium with our Congresswoman. Um, so any bills that come out, you know, we try and push and and we educate, um, everyone. We're also very, um, you know, working together with, with fibromyalgia. So any fibromyalgia advocacy, we're going to be doing that as well. So, um, just, you know, a little bit of everything mm-hmm. here, or there, we don't have anything set in stone as far as what we're doing, what we have scheduled, but no, but um, you're, you're both, uh, fairly prolific. I mean, you are doing so much. You're hosting community calls. You are hosting them in English and in Spanish. You are organizing events. You are organizing le- legislative change, educating, you know, connecting people. I think this is incredible. And we have to be so grateful in this moment to, that, you know, you guys are here for us in this community. And I- I'm so grateful to have had time to spend with you both today because man, have you both got incredible stories, but also you are doing incredible things for the community. And I'm just so honored to have had you on the show. Thank you. You You know, we do it, we do it. And I know you do it as well. You're helping so many people by just giving them this, you know, information, you know, there are so many people that are not um, that don't have a lot of support, that don't have a family like us, mm-hmm. that don't have a, a good sister like I do, you know, mm-hmm. good sisters. Um, and they need to uh, to look up to something. And your podcast is, mm-hmm. is helping a lot of people. So Thank you're you. doing amazing things. So it's our pleasure to be here with you. Well, we're all helpers together. So <laughs> we finally, the three of us gotten together and can do a little helping helping spoonful from all three of us at once. Um, And reminder to everyone, you can find uh, Looms for Lupus uh, at Looms for Lupus on social media and um, check out those Instagram lives, check out those regular events in English and in Spanish. And thank you again, Juana and Estella for being on the show today. You are both lights in this community and we are so, so lucky to have you. Thank you. you. That's it folks. Thanks for listening. 
As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.